I want to merge this morning our commitment series with the theme of the Reformation. We could call this Reformation Sunday because it's the closest Sunday to October 31st when we remember the rich heritage of the Protestant Reformation. October 31st is Reformation Day, originally known by the church as All Hallows' Eve, All Saints' Eve. Uh, All Hallows' Eve became Halloween, uh, as we know it in our American culture. On that day, October 31st, Martin Luther nailed his document, his 95 statements, to the church door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg. It was not an angry or violent protest as much as it was a public invitation to a discussion regarding some changes Luther was hoping to implement uh, in the way that the Roman Catholic Church was functioning. Luther's 95 theses collided with Rome's antagonistic response like steel on flint. And the resulting spark became what we call the Protestant Reformation. But that was 505 years ago. So what does this mean for us today? Well, we recognize that we are in the family tree of those reformers, those Protestants who split from the Roman Catholic Church essentially over the key doctrine of salvation, what it means to be justified, not by our works, but by faith in the perfect work of Jesus Christ. So the Reformation is a big deal, or should be, to American Protestants, whether they realize it or not. Our liturgy, the way we run our services, is largely due to the Reformation. Our doctrinal statement is largely conforming to the teachings that were revived in the Reformation. We have a Bible in our hands, in a language we can read because of the Reformation. And you're sitting in a worship service, listening to a language you understand, in large part because of the Reformation. And so, we give thanks today for those who lived and died, as Jude tells us, earnestly contending for the faith that has been delivered to the saints. I want to consider some historical information about the Reformation. If you're new to Grace Bible Church, uh, maybe some of these things will be educational. If you've been around for a while, I'm hoping that by reviewing these things each year, some of these names and places or dates or ideas are starting to take root and you recognize that we stand in a long line of godly men who have contended for the faith. Let me use a series of interrogatives. First, what? What is the Protestant Reformation? Well, the word Protestant simply means protest. They were the Protestants. They they raised their concerns about the Church of Rome. And it was, in a sense, a mild call for reform. Became much more explosive than they intended, But Protestant Reformation just reminds us they were protesting some things they thought weren't quite right, 
seeking to reform some of the practices of the church. God had greater plans than even some of these men realized in calling the heart and minds of true believers to attention to the word of God. Why? Why a Protestant Reformation? Well, the church was corrupt. It had become first shallow. Rather than being rooted in scripture, the church was basing their way of doing things on the traditions of men, the word of the Pope. The Bible was no longer even necessary in the church or in the seminaries. Martin Luther so struggled with the guilt of his sin that he drove his superiors crazy in constant confession, constant pursuit of what we saw in Romans 1 earlier, the righteousness of God. And so in order to forever occupy him in the barren wasteland of academics, they sent him to a rare study, the study of the Bible. It's been called the greatest mistake the Catholic Church ever made, sending Luther to study the scriptures in their intention to just isolate him in some corner somewhere and let him get lost in whatever that was. The church was corrupt. It had become political. Of course, the church and the state were in constant competition for power. Churches should not be about political power, but about kingdom power. The church had become financial. Money became the driving need of the church. To build the Pope's projects, they needed funds. And so the sale of indulgences became the popular innovation of the church. But it led to widespread corruption. The church had become immoral. Sinfulness compounded by the vow of celibacy led to a corrupt priesthood, widespread vice. Again, Luther, in a pursuit of something to satisfy in the church of Rome, took a pilgrimage to Rome. And there, even in his acts of penance and confession, was repulsed by the prostitution and the vileness all around in the capital of the church's empire. The church had become ritualistic. Customs had become cumbersome. Priests went through the motions of mass, speaking Latin words that the congregation didn't understand. History tells us that most of the priests didn't even understand their words. They were memorized sounds that were rehearsed. Worship had, had been taken away from the common person and elevated to a, a mystical, out-of-touch kind of experience. The church had become heretical. They had contaminated the good news that salvation is accomplished in Christ. You don't have to work to accomplish your salvation. <clears throat> so a reformation was needed. A protest was warranted. Where did this all take place? Where was the Protestant Reformation? Well, just think of it in modern day terms as Europe. We're thinking Western Europe, the countries you know as Spain and France and Germany and Belgium and the Netherlands, all those areas there, what used to be Yugoslavia, I don't even know my modern day countries now. I'm still stuck on what I learned in geography. But 
Western Europe was this hotbed of revival in seeing God's word and believing it. Who? Who were the backbone names of the Reformation? I'll give you five that you should know. Martin Luther, think of essentially Germany. Ulrich Zwingli in Zurich, Switzerland. William Tyndall, perhaps a name you recognize, and to him we credit so much of the work for the English Bible. John Calvin in France, and then ultimately Geneva, Switzerland. And John Knox, who shook Scotland uh, with his message of the gospel. If you were trying to place this on your historical timeline, we're going back 500 years roughly, If you just remember the year 1500, uh, you're basically there at the beginning of all these ideas uh, that are characterized in the Reformation. All the names that I mentioned are men who were born close to 1500 and died close to 1550. So that year 1500 is significant. That's when things are brewing and we're going to boil over in this great protest. One last question. How? How did they do it? Well, there's a lot of stories that could be told, not the least of which would be the invention of the printing press, which made ideas so much more accessible to the common man as they could be mass-produced. Before then, it was handwritten copies that were rare and reserved for those in places of scholarship. And now... Ideas, God's ideas, the Bible, and the teaching of the reformers, uh, those ideas could be spread through cities and villages all across Europe and eventually to England. But that's not really the ultimate how. How did they do it? And our first answer would be to clarify that they did it with nothing new. No innovation, no new idea, no new plan, no new doctrine, no programs. What brought about the sweeping changes that would shake Europe and ultimately the world then and still today was the preaching of the Bible. These men did what the church had not done for decades, if not centuries in some places. They opened the Bible and proclaimed, this is what God tells us. And that, to quote another poet, has made all the difference. And it still does. If you will open the Bible believing that God has spoken these words, it will make a difference in your life. Let me finish the review of the Reformation with a summary of its core doctrines. Some of you in the equip hour uh, were able to rattle off the five pillars of the Reformation in their Latin expression. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Sola Gratia, Grace alone. Sola Fide, Faith alone. Solus Christus, in Christ alone. And soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. Ultimately, the Protestant Reformation gave us this complete truth of these five doctrinal pillars. 
We believe that Scripture alone reveals salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. That's the Reformation in a nutshell. Oftentimes in years past, we've taken time to study a biography of one of these men to realize that to earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints means to live in real-world culture and go against the worldview of the day proclaiming the truth of God's word. And so we've studied men who have done that. Today, in this merging of Reformation enthusiasm and our growing grace enthusiasm, I want us to think about our commitment to one of these pillars of doctrine, sola scriptura, our commitment to the authority of God's word in the life of this church and in our individual lives. Sola scriptura, scripture alone. You see, the Roman Catholic Church taught that the foundation for faith and practice was the Holy Scriptures and the traditions of the church and the teachings of the Pope. So we should be careful not to mischaracterize the Catholic Church saying, oh, they don't believe in the Scriptures as authority. No, they do. So don't, don't create a straw man to argue against. Rather, understand the problem was that they, they had other authorities. And in these dark ages in which the light of the Reformation would shine, there was a real dilemma because so much of Scripture's authority had been lost or surrendered or simply overshadowed by tradition and popes who had monstrously gone astray in their egos. And so, while the Roman Catholic Church said Scripture, tradition, and the Pope were the authorities by which we go, and in the time of the Reformation, Scripture kind of being lowest on that chain, the Reformers said, no, the Bible is the only infallible and final authority for the life of the Christian. This is where Luther got himself in trouble in his famous stand at the Diet of Worms when he's called to give an accounting of his teaching, called to recant of all of his writings. He said he could not do that. And when challenged with, on what authority can you say these things, when the church is saying, no, we don't see it that way, he stood on the authority of Scripture. And even then, those that he argued against, those in the church said, the church has the authority to interpret Scripture as it will. They put the church as a higher standard than the Scriptures. Luther said, no, it's the other way around. The church's authority can be good and helpful, but it is derived from Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. So this morning we are reminded of what Paul told Timothy, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, 
that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So this morning, our theme is this. As a disciple of Jesus Christ, you must commit to know and to do what the Bible says. This would be the spirit of the Reformation, alive in you. Not to go nailing Bible verses up on cubicles in the workplace this week. You know, not to protest at every church that we don't think is doing a good job. No, first and foremost, the Reformation flame would burn in your heart by recognizing I need to submit to the authority of God's word in my daily decision making. I need to submit to God's word so that I don't lose my temper. So I don't say unkind things or be overly sarcastic. So I don't give in to the temptation to lust or to covet or to be afraid. Those are the daily battles we're talking about. It was great for Luther to stand up and oppose the Pope and fight him for decades. But that might not be your calling this week. You might just be called to be long-suffering and patient with someone. But the truth of the matter is, when we yield to the authority of God's word, we can do those things. So as a disciple of Jesus Christ, you must commit to know and to do what the Bible says. In the past weeks, we've asked you to commit to the idea of joining a church, praying for the church, giving to the church, serving the church, and now we challenge you to commit to knowing and doing what the Bible says. So I want you to hear an old story from 2 Kings, and then we'll conclude this story with four questions, three from the text and one as just our conclusion, all right? So first, the story, because the story and then the questions are intended to call us to this obedience and commitment to the authority and the sufficiency of God's word. 1 Kings, or 2 Kings, rather, 22. We begin hearing of Josiah, who was eight years old when he began to reign. He reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidiah, the daughter of Adiah of Boscath. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. In the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, the secretary, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. And let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. And let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord, repairing the house, that is, to the carpenters and to the builders and to the masons. And let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house." But no accounting shall be asked from them for the money that is delivered into their hand, for they deal honestly. And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law 
in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. This is the account of this child king, Josiah, who is excited about repairing the house of the Lord, the temple. So he sends the offerings that have come in to the builders, and they go to work. And much like we're doing next door, they're, they're pulling out all the disrepaired, rubbled, leftover stuff of the broken down temple so they can start fresh. New masonry work's going to be done, new construction work. Again, reminding us of that high calling of tasks of all sorts. And in the midst of digging through the rubble and cleaning up, they find some scrolls. And in verse 8, it's this private conversation. Hilkiah the high priest, Shaphan, who's called the secretary, he's kind of the right-hand man of the king. And it's almost in low tones, perhaps. I found something. I think, I think it's ancient scrolls of the law. And he gives it to Shaphan, and he reads it. And it's almost like if you're watching the movie, without even any script, he's rolling it up, putting it in a vase or something to protect it, and he turns, and he is intently heading out of there. This is like, this is serious stuff. This is a big deal. And the dramatic music would be playing, and no actor would have to say, this is a big deal. No, because the music and the look on their faces and their demeanor would reveal everything you need to know. This is significant. This is going right to the top. They've discovered scripture. So now it's in the hands of Shaphan. Hilkiah has seen it. The secretary has seen it and read it. Verse 9, And Shaphan the secretary came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have oversight to the house of the Lord. That's the expected report because that was the job he was assigned to do. Get the money to the workers so that they can do the job. That report is given, but he's not done. Then the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. It's almost like the drama is leading us on. The king's like, okay, what book? And Shaphan read it before the king. And the king heard the words of the book of the law. And when he did, he tore his clothes. Suddenly, this idea of sola scriptura, like like dark clouds blowing in on a windy day, is, is blowing over the kingdom. You can see it in the distance as they pulled that scroll out of the rubble. The first set of eyes see it. They feel the weight of its importance. Sola Scriptura. Shows it to the secretary. Soon as he reads it, this is, this is big. It's that sense. This matters. This is authority. This is true. He goes to the king. King, we did what you told us but I've got to read you something. 
And in the very reading of those words, a human soul is dismantled before our eyes. He melts at the reality of the weight of God's breathed out words. Verse 11, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. You've probably heard this before. It's this expression of of being undone. It's an expression of humility, an expression of repentance. The reality of this, this is breathed out from God. This is holy and I am not. We are a needy people desperately dependent on God's mercy. We read on. Verse 12. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam the son of Shaphan and Akbor the son of Micaiah and Shaphan the secretary and Isaiah the king's servant saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me and for the people. And for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us. Because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. This binding power, this authority of God's word has now gripped the king. It has his full attention. And he senses this threatening judgment that God had promised in the law to those who abandoned it. Scholars believe this is likely portions of Deuteronomy, which summarizes much of the law. And in Deuteronomy, a heavy emphasis on the multiple expressions of how God could curse his people should they walk away from the covenant and the law. It seems Josiah has heard some of these threats and he recognizes the wrath of God surely must be aimed directly at us. Because remember, this is in the 18th year of his reign. And there has been no attention to the word of God in his lifetime and likely far beyond it. And so the king sends his key guys. We heard their names. They end up finding a prophetess, Huldah, and she confirms, one, that God will judge Israel. It is inescapable. It's going to happen. But two, she adds that God will not do this in Josiah's lifetime because of his response to the word, because of his humility and his repentance. He will live out his days in this season of revival. But after him will come God's judgment. And so the rest of the chapter unfolds two initiatives that Josiah implements in Israel. The first is an all-out war on idolatry. It's a massive house cleaning. So you could read multiple verses there in the rest of the chapter about all the places on the mountains in the forests everywhere where Josiah cleans out 
all the other authorities, all the other voices, because he's recognized there can be but one authoritative voice in our lives, calling for our attention, calling for our service, calling for our resources. That can only be the voice of God, sola scriptura. Any other voice is the voice of mute and deaf idols. And so Josiah, having encountered the authority of the breathed out word, says every other voice that's contrary must go. Second initiative. He restores the annual Passover. Into chapter 23, we see these reforms unfolding. Chapter 21, or, or verse 21 of chapter 23, and the king commanded all the people, keep the Passover to the Lord your God as it is written in this book of the covenant. For no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel or during all the days of the kings of Israel or the kings of Judah. Interesting verse. The days of the judges to the reign of King Josiah we're on the brink of a couple of hundred years. And I don't know what to do with the reigns of David and Solomon. Kings of Israel and Judah combined. David for a little bit, even only one of them. Maybe it was hit and miss during their reigns. But apparently, that celebration of God doing something for us that we cannot do for ourselves, escape slavery of Egypt in the Old Testament as a picture of escaping the slavery of sin. That celebration had been neglected. It had been lost. Kind of makes sense that we're in the situation we're in in chapter 22 where idolatry is rampant and we'll listen to any voice that's out there because we don't give much concern or care to the word of God. We don't really think much about what he's done for us anymore. The end of chapter 23, we have a summary of Josiah's life before the account of his death. Verse 24, Moreover, Josiah put away the mediums and the necromancers and the household gods and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem so that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. In some kind of ancient ink, on some kind of ancient scroll, God's words were alive. And they reshaped the life of a king who for 18 years had gotten along pretty well but he spent the rest of his days saying there is but one source of truth. There is but one guide for my life. What I know of God and how I will live in his presence. And that is his word to us. He eliminated all those other voices so that he might establish God's authority. Sola Scriptura. 
Four questions for us to think on this morning. They're there in your notes. Question number one. Could it be that the people of God would willfully neglect the word of God? Could it really be that the people of God rescued by him, led by him, blessed by him, would willfully neglect the word of God, we would think, surely not. But when we see how Adam and Eve were so easily swayed, we would have to conclude, yes, when we see how God's people, Israel, so often drifted into idolatry, as in our text, we should likely conclude, yes. Could it be that the people of God would neglect the word of God? When we see the prophet's message constantly calling the people to return to the Lord. He will heal, he'll mend and that message falling on deaf ears, we would have to conclude the answer is yes. When we see the Jewish people rejecting their Messiah and his truth, we would have to conclude yes. Could it be that the people of God would neglect the word of God? Well, when we read the warnings to the church in the New Testament letters regarding the spoiling, contaminating pull of the world, we should probably conclude, yes. Maybe we look back at our own hectic lives in the month of October. And when asked the question, could it be that the people of God could willfully neglect the word of God? We may need to answer yes. Question number two, could it be that the hearing of the word of God would awaken our appetite for it? Could it be that hearing the word of God or seeing it on the page could awaken an appetite for it? Often, after those seasons of neglect, neglect of the word, we kind of settle for defeat. We say something like, well, I, I, I don't know, I just don't get much out of it. I don't know, it just doesn't seem to help me very much. But that's really just a facade. We've, we've accepted the 18 years before the scrolls were found. We've accepted the the lifeless kind of existence, the, the, the wanderings, with the only, only boundary really being we feel bad if people think poorly of us in the church. So we kind of wander between the bumpers of kind of getting it right, but there's no real authority. There's no compass. There's no direction. There's no sword of the Spirit for a fight. We're just existing, defeated. My friend, the answer to neglect is not more neglect. 
I've neglected the scriptures. I feel bad about it, but I say, well, it just doesn't do anything for me. The answer to neglect is not more neglect. The answer is attention. In the prophets, we hear one of them champion the cry to the scriptures. Get there. Josiah's response to the word in verse, four, or verse 13, chapter 22. Having heard something, his response is, go and find out more. What is this all about? You see, it was hearing the word that awakened in him a need for the word. Just moments before, his secretary was rattling off about the details of a job accomplished. We got the money to the guys and they're doing the building. And then in the next moments, he hears the word of God. And literally, as the text unfolds, his life would never be the same. That was the dramatic response. The word itself awakened a desire for the word. Too often we sit back and we think, well, if I just have a passion for the word, I'll do some reading in it. You know, if, when I really get on fire, then I'm going to read the word. What do you have at your disposal that's going to stir you up to truth, apart from truth? Could it be that hearing the word of God would awaken an appetite for it? When he heard the word, he said, go inquire of the Lord for me. I need to hear more. The word kindled repentance, as we know it does, but the word also kindled appetite, desire. Start this week off with hearing or reading the word. Read it from the page. Read it from the screen. Listen to it from that same screen. What a resource you have. What a convenience. But start this week off with hearing or reading so that perhaps that will kindle in you a desire for it. And you will tell you, Go and find out more. This seems to work. This is good. I need to hear this. Give your attention to the word and see if the word will awaken your appetite. Psalm 119, we didn't read that this morning. We were in Psalm 19. Psalm 119 is that lengthy psalm, 22 sections of one song. So if we sang 22 verses of a song, you, you might just sit down halfway through, right? That's a long song to sing. This whole song is about the Word of God. Eight times in that Psalm 119, we read this phrase, Give me life according to your word. Oh, it might say, give me life according to your statutes. Give me life according to your judgments. Give me life according to your wisdom. Eight different times, eight of the 22 verses conclude, 
I'm not feeling it. So would you give me life by your word? Could it be that we could taste and see that the Lord is good? Could it be that the word could awaken in us an appetite for the word? If you don't know where to start taking in the word this week, start in Psalm 119. You'll have 22 days mapped out, eight verses each, plenty to think on for one day. Make no excuses for not having the word kindle something in you this week. Third question, could it be that the word of God would guide us into faithful obedience Could it be that the word of God is powerful enough to move me from neglect and apathy to desire and ultimately to eager obedience? You see, we want to be Josiah. We want to battle against worldviews in our culture. We want to stand against idolatry, the lies of the devil. We want to be that Christian who knows the word and applies it and thinks it rightly. but we're undermining our own desire by saying things like, oh, I was going to read the word and I just didn't have time. I got so busy. It's the word that guides us into faithful obedience. You remember the well-known Psalms? Thy word have I hid in my heart so that I might not sin or so that I might be faithful and obedient. The word is... It has this pragmatic element to it, folks. It works. But we have to give it its opportunity to work by coming to it with a heart of faith and submission. Could it be that the word of God really can guide us down this path of faithful obedience, even though we walk every day through this world of corruption all around us? Could it be the word would keep us clean? Could it be that a young man, by taking heed to the word, could keep himself clean? Psalm 119 tells us. Could it be that Jesus was right when he says, I'm leaving you in the world, I'm not taking you out of it. But don't panic. You'll be sanctified by the word, as you live in the world as salt and light. In our text, we see that Josiah put away all the other gods, all the other voices, and he established one clear voice of authority. And the Bible uses that word, he established it. He said, here it is, it's not going anywhere Listen to what the words of this book say because they are the words of our God. And then we see that he lived his life in submission to God's words. His heart, his soul, his mind, unlike any other king before him. What was the difference? He kept coming to the word. Sola Scriptura. So question number four, not from our story, but as a result of it, could it be that the word of God needs a more prominent 
place in your life. I know we could, we could try to wax eloquent about you need to do better and, and a guilt trip and more time, more, 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 more. But I want to phrase the question this way because it simply invites us, like the rest of our commitment studies, to simply ask, Lord, do I need to do something differently? Do I need to change something? Does the Word of God need a more prominent place? I'm not saying you have to study the Bible an hour in the morning. But reading eight verses in Psalm 119 and being reminded of the truth and the power and the goodness and the hope of God's Word might whet your appetite. You might get to an hour someday. You might never. But the question isn't, what's the right amount of time? The question is, does it simply need a more prominent place in my life? Sola Scriptura is more than a theological argument. It is your hope this week for having a lamp for your spiritual feet and a light for your spiritual walk. Without that light, you're going to stub your toe on pornography. You're going to stub your toe or catch your knee on the, the corner of covetousness. You're walking in the dark, and you're going to step in the mud of fearfulness about what people think of you. And we could go on through the sins that are set like traps all around us, the wiles of the devil, but with a light shining on your path, the light of God's word, you can get it right. How might you prioritize the word this week? Now the king grabbed his cabinet members, his top guys, and he said, I'm trusting you to go find a prophet and figure out what else we need to know. You, you don't have to do that. You are your own search party. Come and find out from God's word what you've been missing. How are you communicating to your peers, to your friends, that the word holds significant sway over the way you think? How do you plug in God's truth to worldview discussions, to the back and forth conversations about the news? And all the stuff that we hate's going on. Are you thinking biblically? Is the word saturating your mind? We could ask this question. How are you demonstrating to your children that God's words are significant? Oh, you might say they're true. Other descriptives. But apart from them knowing systematic theology apart from them knowing what sola scriptura even means, what, what do they see in you? What are they hearing that whether their heart is ever awakened to belief or not, they will never escape the reality that you believed God speaks. How are you communicating that? We must wrestle with these questions in order to be champions of sola scriptura. In order to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word. 
revive our desire for it this morning. By the hearing of this, your word, and a story about hearing this, your word, awaken our hearts to an enthusiasm and a zeal like that of Josiah. This would be the work of your spirit in us, for we are often dull in our response to the word. Let us be done with that substandard way of living the Christian life. Would you light a flame in us, a flame ignited by your word, and a flame that burns to know it more and to live it out in this dark world that we live in. May the voice of truth drown out the lying and malicious, yet often alluring voice of our enemy, the devil. Bring us to say, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all day long. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, the word of God is living and powerful. It will accomplish its purpose in us as we go in grace. God bless you all.